0: This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched storyandrain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now as a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters. We're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game changing ideas and careers. With our high low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Michelle Murphy has dedicated her life to helping others accept a reality beyond that which they can see and feel. Our Story and Rain Talks episode 113, Sit Down with the Medium, sheds light on the afterlife and how this particular intuitive uses her gifts. We discuss the many ways in which energy workers practice, how they recognize and support one another and more. Michelle talks about seeing what she jokingly calls the useless future, about her routines and rituals, and how she experiences and lives with the energies of others, making her heartbeat faster than others around her through things like exercise and using nutrition to stay clear and to stay present. We get into the big topics like life's patterns, humanity's deepest desires, and a post-pandemic shift in client needs. Clients who once wanted to address the loss of their loved ones to clients who now need to look at loss of themselves. Michelle discusses her creative and fashion flair, her love affair with language, and the gift and tool of metaphor in her sessions. With great intimacy, she shares what's most fulfilling and what's most difficult in her work, and she speaks very candidly about her compassion work, her work with the sick who are close to crossing over. We go over the characteristics of those who get the most out of sessions and those who do not. We talk about being a teen when she first recognized her gift and how her family has played a part in her life's path. We talk the times she's come across naysayers and how she would like to see both people and her work evolve and more. If you've ever wanted to get inside of the mind of a psychic medium or have been tempted to talk to one, your opportunity is now. Notice the calm and gentle energy of this beautiful discussion with the witty and the wonderful Michelle Murphy. Hi, Michelle.
1: How are you? Very well. Look, it's it's very Michael Singer. Do you know this book, The Untethered
0: Soul? Yes, I do. An oldie, but a goodie, right?
1: I also have Tess of the Durberville. So I got all sorts of stuff.
0: That's very Michelle Murphy. It is. That reading selection is very Michelle Murphy.
1: It is. Yeah. I've got Leonard Cohen next to the Torah.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean- <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Yes. Michelle, you're a medium. Explain what a medium is in the general sense and what a medium is in terms of your particular gift and how it presents.
1: Oh, excellent question, of course. So mediumship for me is, well, for anybody, it's the connection to spirit. It's the connection to our guides and our loved ones who've crossed over. It happens in all sorts of different ways. Some people can see and hear the other side. I however just get all the feelings and I get flashes and memories that don't really belong to me and strange compulsions to do and say things that don't make sense to me but end up landing with some specificity for whoever my client is or whatever the conversation is. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. I have more questions for you about just that. My next question is do you only get messages through those who have died? Or do other ideas and other intuitions come to you in your work?
1: Oh, my gosh, I love that. Yes, all the time. Technology before it actually happens. So I've told people about, I called them talking tweets uh, about two years before Instagram had its, what do they call them? Those uh, Instagram lives?
0: Instagram lives or Instagram stories? Stories.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I'm a bit of a technophobe so yeah, which is kind of ironic. I feel things coming without knowing what they are. I kind of jokingly refer to it as the useless future because I don't recognize it until it's right there in front of me. And that happens an awful lot. It's a sense of something that's coming. However, as I say it's useless because you get bits and pieces of it and then when it arrives it makes sense, but while it's in the arrival stage it's absolute Just mystery.
0: Well, I have a question about that then. So, when you are getting pieces of ideas, snippets of visions, do you catalog them anywhere or record them anywhere or file them away, either mentally? I mean, we'll talk all about how much you actually have to file away mentally in your work, but do you save them or place them somewhere?
1: I think what I do is I try to hold on to a sense of them because, again, it's so incredibly fragmented and nonsensical when it hits me. They're ridiculous little details that only make sense in in the full context once the project or the thing is complete. So I try to remember, but that's really only for my own, I guess, affirming that I'm not crazy.
0: Do you see specifics about all the people around you, or generalities, or a mix of both?
1: Yeah, yeah, a mix of both. Uh, definitely a mix of both. So
0: the gems are the things that don't make sense, though. So let's stop there. Why is that? Why are the things that don't make sense the gems?
1: Because it's a mystery even to me. For instance, I might have a client, and I will, I will get a very strong sense that they're is say a military person in their history. And there's absolutely no military, no military, no military. And they'll go home and dig in to what that meant only to find that somebody had a very small military stint that nobody really knew about. And so it makes it very authentic that I'm able to pick up stuff that doesn't make sense in the moment. And then there is that kind of confirmation of it later on.
0: When and how was it exactly that you discovered your gift?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, I think it's when I realized other people didn't have the same gift.
0: And when was that? How was that? Were you in school? Were you younger? Were you a little bit older?
1: It was quite young, I guess, in well, not too, too young. In high school, I found people would always come to me and they'd confess everything all the time. And I would know what to say to them or I'd know how to comfort them in a way that just didn't always make logical sense.
0: But that's really interesting because that means that somewhere in your interactions in school, you were providing people with a deeper level of conversation mm-hmm. than what they were used to. And so that's so organic. I mean, it's really mind blowing when you think about it. You were having multi layered conversations with people and your peers at that age you sort of force them to kind of come back to you again and again. Exactly. You weren't having a standard classroom conversation, whatever you were saying or sharing or the way that you were interacting with your friends and classmates was probably on such a deeper level that you kept getting that request to talk more, right? Absolutely.
1: It was the opposite of typical small talk.
0: You were not making small talk with people at that age when, you know, a lot of the times that school time banter and chatter is like a lot of, you know, until you really forge strong friendships, it's all about that banter. And you probably just were always cutting to the chase. Oh my God, that's so funny.
1: My foot and mouth is another thing. I, I was really good at sticking my foot in my mouth and saying the most inappropriate thing at the worst time imaginable.
0: For example?
1: Oh gosh, I can't even think of them. But I think... Everybody can relate to that moment where they they get on a train of conversation and they just think, oh, I'm looking like the biggest idiot here. I really, I don't belong in this conversation.
0: Because I'm going down a road that nobody expected.
1: Yes, exactly. So I would find that I would say something completely, seemingly random out of the blue only to find that it really struck a chord in somebody. So if I was speaking to, say, five people, one of them would, you know, four people would be like, why is she talking about this? This is the strangest conversation to have. And that fifth person would know exactly why. And they'd come to me later and say, it's so strange you were talking about that so awkwardly because, you know, this happened or that happened. Wow.
0: And when you think about this time in your life, Is there a specific story that comes to mind, a conversation with friends or a moment during that time in your life that's sort of the marker for, oh, this is how I'm interacting with people in the world. This is different.
1: Yeah. I think I scared my first boyfriend into going out with me (laughs) because at the time it seemed to have started at a very young age. I have quite long fingers very slender fingers. And people used to say to me, you have piano hands. Have you ever heard that expression? Yeah, of course. So I assumed I was five or six years of age. I assumed, oh, okay, well, my father has mechanical hands. He's a mechanic and mom has nurturing hands. She's a nurse. And so I assumed people knew what you were like by what your hands looked like. Now I can't play piano to save my life, but I just thought that was interesting at a very young age. And as a result, I would be able to tell stuff about people from the backs of their hands, not the palms, but the backs of their hands. Wow. So I would just, because somebody implied that you could tell something about what a person's hand looked like, that it would tell you something about who they were. So my little, you know, five-year-old mind created this entire story around what you could tell about a person by their hands. And so I would, you know, go to parties and, read people's hands for fun the backs of their hands the backs
0: of their hands
1: my poor first boyfriend he was lovely but I think he dated me because he was terrified (laughs) I I just nailed stuff that was going on in his life that nobody knew about and it was pretty heavy serious stuff it was medical stuff to do with his family and you know it was after one too many wild berry coolers so (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving away my age now we we in Canada drank at a much earlier age than Americans. So
0: that's true. So yeah. just take that into consideration. Yes. yes. Right. I was yeah. I wasn't in high school at 21. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you believe that you have this gift? Oh gosh. Have you contemplated that? I'm sure you've thought about that and contemplated it over the years.
1: Yes, yes. For the first few years, I was quite confused about what the gift was. Because again, I don't get visuals. I don't hear anything. I just go from not knowing something to knowing something. But I always felt that I'm meant to help people. That's my hope that I can provide clarity and peace, or that I can actually give people a space where they can explore the possibility of clarity and peace.
0: You know, I've known you for some time now. Do you share this skill with anyone in your family? Or some piece of this skill? I think a lot of
1: my gift comes from both my parents, though they never practiced it. They were always incredibly intuitive. I had an aunt, Light of Heaven, to her in Ireland that, you know, she was this tiny little lady and people would go to her and tell her all of their secrets. And she just had a way of making them feel better and I think she was doing what I do except she wasn't calling it out there's so many ways to offer comfort and wisdom to people without saying oh your grandmother's behind you you know
0: (laughs) or whatever the case may be so let's go back to sort of the beginning and what your initial feelings were about this did it make you feel different or separate in a good way in a bad way
1: Again, my parents are kind of everything, light of heaven to them as well. See, I was a little learning disabled. I was very underweight.
0: You were learning disabled, that's surprising to me.
1: Yeah, we're all different, right? So I have a a bit of a sequential learning disability and a little bit of dyslexia. So I was an atypical learner in school. I also had a headgear. (laughs) Um, I was very underweight, very awkward. So I was always a little bit different. This was just one of many things that made me a little bit different. And I had parents that were spectacular in making me feel different, but good. Wow. Yeah. Next level love and a sister who was a genius in supporting me in everything I've ever done. So I've been really blessed with incredible formative experiences
0: I would think now that you've shared that you feel that your parents, they really saw you because they recognized something in you that maybe they had. Would that be accurate? I think so. It's wonderful that you received that kind of support.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're dealing with a uh, very old school.
0: Exactly. Well, that's what I'm thinking about, you know, but at the same time, there's this dichotomy of we understand this. We understand her, which was probably very supportive for you
1: it was remarkable in retrospect. I always felt different, but
0: good, which is such a gift to have in this world. Today, how do you stay present when you have other beings in the form of your gift vying for your attention? <laughs>
1: I'll let you know when I figure it out.
0: Uh, <laughs> right. Are there things that you do or that might be the constant thing in your life that needs management?
1: Yes. It requires a lot of, uh, management and maintenance to stay present. I, I have to stay sober tragically.
0: Um, (laughs) I have a question for you about how you take care of your body and your health. And so that's very interesting that you've said that.
1: Yeah. Sobriety. I have to be physically active. I have to watch my nutrition. I have to stay you know, very, very physically active. Back when the world started reopening after COVID, I went into a Starbucks and it was the first time I had been in a group of physical people in probably a year. And I went up to the counter and ordered my coffee and I had to wait about six or seven minutes. And I was okay for the first 30 seconds, but then I started feeling everybody's emotion in that space so i was feeling anxious and frustrated and angry and all of the things they weren't my feelings i was feeling i feel everybody else's feelings so i grabbed my coffee and went back to my car and i had really cute summer dress on and my little slingback kitten heels and i had to do about 20 jumping jacks outside of my car before getting in because
0: i oh <laughs> had to shift the energy how brilliant though, that you have those tools. Like I'm actually going to leave a Starbucks and do some jumping jacks in a dress <laughs> and kitten heels. Yeah. Not very high, but very awkward in a lot of ways. Yeah.
1: I usually don't wear kitten heels, but it worked with this dress. It was a little an Audrey Hepburn moment. So
0: <laughs> it was something to change the energy.
1: Yeah. And I think what I've learned over the years is that because I sense everybody else's emotion, it's almost like you can, you can sense everybody's heart in a room. And a good fix all is making your heartbeat the loudest one in your own head.
0: Interesting. So it's a physical thing to make your own heartbeat be the distraction.
1: Absolutely. That or (laughs) tequila,
0: which I don't do that much anymore. You don't need to, right?
1: No, exactly. And and it was a need. In retrospect, I realized that I did drink quite strategically as a bit of a buffer, especially when I was going places. Explain that. I would be overwhelmed constantly. So going to work parties when I used to work corporate and even in university and, and being in crowds of people, I thought it was social anxiety for a little while. And this is in the 90s. Nobody talked about anxiety. Right, of course. So I used to say my mind is lovely and still at the bottom of a third pint. So now I've been very disciplined in my drinking. I will, I will drink to please the palate only. So, you know, if I feel like something spicy, I'll find Tanteo tequila. You can only get it in New York. It's yummy. Uh, I don't even know if it still exists, but I drink, to, as I say, please my palate.
0: And that is all. It is a burden, but it's also it's such a gift. It's such a gift. You're hyper-conscious or perhaps more conscious than a lot of us when it comes to taking care of your physical and your mental health. Whereas a lot of us tend to get caught into the day-to-day and we forget or we're stressed about a certain thing, or we're focused on a certain project. Absolutely. And then suddenly we're out of body and we're not as in tune to mental and physical health. With you, you learned at an early age that you have to be focused on that.
1: Yes, absolutely. The other thing that helps tremendously, it's this technology. Uh, and actually the founder is in New York. It's called Tune Studios I don't know if you and I've talked about tune studios before, but it's a vibration and sound therapy bed. You lie on it for 15 minutes and it recalibrates your nervous system from a stress state to a flow state. So after 15 minutes, it feels like you've had, you know, the world's greatest hot yoga and, and Shavasana session, except it's only 15 minutes. Fantastic.
0: We'll link that in the show notes.
1: Yes, please do. It's a game changer. I have one in my home, but I know there's two studios in New York. They're wonderful for bringing you back to you. They're, they're a lot less awkward than 20 jumping jacks and kitten heels.
0: <laughs> how long, Michelle, did it take for you to hone, cultivate, tap into your gift? And how long would you go about doing that, cultivating it?
1: Oh, in what manner do you mean?
0: There's this discovery phase mm,
1: mm. where
0: you've realized there's something else here with me. Did you spend any time trying to hone this gift? You talked a little bit about how you learned to manage your day-to-day life, being a person, having your own feelings. But did you spend any other time once you discovered this gift saying, these are maybe the practices or the rituals or what I need to do to hone the gift and cultivate it.
1: Yeah. I, for the first few years of knowing what it was, because I didn't even, I've been doing this for 20 years. And when I started doing it, because I don't see or hear anything, I just thought I was a little crazy at the beginning. When I was working in this capacity, I would pray. I would (laughs) literally pray that only goodness would come through and I would be just please let it work. Please let me help this person. You know, almost like I was afraid not to disappoint them, but I recognize that when people come to this work, it takes courage and vulnerability to be open to it. This is not for the faint of heart. It's a very special thing to be able to share with another human being, and I honor that. So I don't take it lightly. So for the preparation for me was very just humility and prayer constantly. And over the years, I've learned that this is something that is always changing. My only real practice is to have no opinion as to what's next. So the more I'm open to whatever comes, the more I am relaxed in receiving it and more accurate in sharing it. Over the pandemic, I've worked in a really neat capacity with Uh, a lot of business people trying to remember why they got into business in the first place because what used to be a commute to work became a two-inch threshold and the accolades that we received going into office and going into space and being leaders in community. That's interesting. Yeah, there's been a lot of depression and a lot of shifts and so I've been really blessed to be able to work and sense what their true vocation is, what their truth is, what their little person passion is, and realigning that with their very big person job description.
0: What's interesting is that I think I just listened to something, I either saw something on television or listened to something, that we often, when we talk about the pandemic and how it's had an effect on corporate structure, office life, people's work, people's relationships tied to work, you often hear about how it's affecting not the people that you just mentioned, mm. but you forget about how it affects people that are senior and level and with some stature. And you know, I feel like the stories are being told about the people that work for them and not the people that worked very hard to get to a certain point and are used to being a boss and are used to being in charge and are used to interacting with people in a certain way. And they're sitting in their Eton shirts with their underoos. Yeah. Feeling so
1: vulnerable, right? Yeah. That's
0: interesting to think about. Yeah. What are your thoughts on those who don't believe in this, who don't think that what you're able to do is possible?
1: I was one of them. I was, even while I was doing it, I remember the first time I saw my sister actually was the one who sat me down and said, you know, you're kind of like this guy. And she made me watch a TV show called John Edwards crossing over. And I said to her, Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. You can't exploit sad people. That's not real. And
0: she just called me out and she said, you do it. Was that hurtful though? That she said I did it. Well, to have a family member that was so close to you sort of seeing those things. No, it
1: wasn't. She only ever leads with love if she says, jump, you just trust.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She is beautiful. I'm very, very blessed with my family. So yeah, I didn't think I could do it either until it happened to me. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who don't subscribe to this. You know, I think if you're kind, if you're authentic, if you're not judging somebody else, then have at it.
0: Has it been Um, a difficulty for you, Michelle, in your life had you had to deal with anyone? truly close to you, not supporting or believing in your work? Sure, there are the people that are the naysayers, but has it presented as a problem for you in your life and your work?
1: Early on in my work, there were people who actually thought they wanted to be my friends. Oh, that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, right?
0: Yeah, the people that want things from you, right?
1: Hmm. And I'm sure you get that all the time. It happens everywhere. Thankfully, I think because I can be very socially awkward, only the realest of real people have actually come to my inner circle. I've been really, really blessed with an incredible group of friends. And I'm very lucky that I I haven't really suffered too much judgment, not personally. If it's outside of my immediate kind of people that matter to me, it doesn't really have to matter. I've also been very blessed to work with people who are in the public eye. And what I've observed over time is usually there's only about 10 to 15 people that ever really matter. Everything else can just be noise.
0: That's great advice. Yeah. Many of us have many people in our lives, right? And then they're the few people that matter. And there's a whole bunch making noise that don't necessarily matter. So that's how you deal with the naysayers in your life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if their naysaying is an opportunity for me to grow, then I will listen and discern, but I won't take it personally.
0: How are you creative in your work?
1: I love language. I love language. I have a big love affair with language. So I think my creativity comes out in metaphor. Some of the, the wonderful metaphors that just drop into my head are lovely. Or language just presents itself almost in poetic prose to me.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Would that be an accurate way of describing how People interact with you in your work is sort of through these really interesting and beautiful metaphors that are then left as a little present, as a little gift for the person that you're interacting with to sort of talk about with you and then take away with them after the session and continue to think about.
1: Absolutely. And it always surprises me because I hear the words as I say the words. So, you know, when we're having a conversation, you're asking a question, I receive it and I actually think about it and with incredible speed, I can answer back. But when I'm in that space of work, I'm hearing the words as I'm saying the words, there's almost like no me in there. And some of the words are quite beautiful. Some of them are funny.
0: Or like that's when you're a conduit, right?
1: Yeah, exactly
0: do you have a word or a way in which you define people with the same sort of gift as you? Do you think about that kind of thing? Or do you see all as different from one another? I'm talking about intuitive healers, psychics, mediums, you know, tarot readers, medical intuitives.
1: It's a very interesting question. And I've never actually thought about it funny enough. It's kind of obvious. I think we all do it, but it's like cooking. You know, you've got Cordon Bleu and then you've got McDonald's and (laughs) sometimes you're craving a little of this. There's some disciplines that are actually quite fun and there's some disciplines that are more growth oriented and they feel a little more sacred. And I think there's a time and place for everything. So I think it's under one giant umbrella of energy work and there's room for everything in there and there's an appropriate time and place for everything
0: there are, I guess, some more serious practitioners than others, right?
1: Yeah. My more serious work is my compassion work when I deal with people who are about to cross over. So on occasion, I will have a client share with me that they have a loved one who's terminally ill. And my golden rule is that if that person by their own free will actually says, I wish I had a medium. I wish I could find somebody like the one on TV or whatever.
0: I wish I could talk to this person or that person.
1: That's when I pop in and that's my compassion work. And again, I, I don't advertise that because it has to be genuine. The worst thing you can do to somebody who's about to cross over is suggest they do something different, right?
0: <laughs> or sell them anything. Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. And I call it compassion work because I don't actually charge for that work.
0: What have been your relationships, Michelle, to others in your field? Maybe you don't know very many people who are in the same sort of field or have the same sort of gifts as you. I would think it might be very comforting to have friends and or colleagues that share part of the same life experience. Yes,
1: we we seem to find each other. Oh, (laughs) we seem to find each other you know, in a restaurant sitting next to somebody and we'll just look at each other and know. Interesting. Oh, it's, it's really? happened so many times. It has. I'll literally sit next to a total stranger and she'll look at me or he'll look at me and I'll look at, at them and I'll say, are you? And they'll say, and you? And we'll just nod and I'm like, what kind? And they're like, angel readings and you and I'm like, dead people.
0: And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Can you describe what is it? that comes through between like-minded people like yourselves? It's so strange.
1: I don't know if there's an actual physical sense for the knowing. It's like sitting next to somebody who has the same fragrance on, you know, when you sit next to, if you're wearing Baccarat Rouge and you sit down and you're like, got it. Is that me is, or is that them? And you kind of like, Oh, you're wearing the same
0: fragrance. Sort of. In meeting new people, I feel like I've known you forever.
1: Exactly. And that's usually how we meet each other is through so called coincidence and randomness. But, and it's not a look, it's not a look or anything. One of my favorite things is when people are surprised by what I look like. You know, I've had people <laughs> expect me to look a certain way. And
0: this is interesting. Is there something that people most think you will look like? Older and. I think
1: plain, (laughs) older and plain maybe, I don't know. But people are like, oh, oh, you're, oh, you know. You like fashion. Yeah, I love fashion, love
0: fashion. I know that about you.
1: I love when I see you and you actually pay me a compliment. It is like the Academy Awards for me. It's a big (laughs)
0: deal. Well, you always have something fun that you're wearing. What's most fulfilling about your work?
1: Oh, this really wonderful understanding that we're all the same.
0: I thought you were going to say your compassion work, which you just touched on. Yes. A really big part of your work, the work that you do that you don't charge for is with people who are ill and who are crossing over. And I would think that the expected answer were for you to say something like that. But I think it's very interesting that you're saying Yeah. No, it's that, but probably something much bigger than that.
1: It's kind of the same answer though, too. You know, when I say we're all the same, we're not treated the same. Yes. There are serious prejudices in this world. And I am not going to be the person to talk about that at all, because I am humbled by the resilience of people who are not of privilege That being said, the human heart is the human heart and every being does suffer. And when we are contemplating those who we have lost or the loss of our own lives, we all become the same. And what I've learned is that the true currency of the next life is the discrete, quiet kindnesses we practice here.
0: That's a mind-blowing takeaway. It really is. (laughs) We talked about what is most fulfilling in your work. What is most difficult in your work?
1: I am often the kind of last ditch non-therapist. I call it non-therapist because there's a therapeutic quality to what happens, but I am not a therapist or a coach at all. I do deal with a lot of people who are very reluctant and very, very sad because of their loss and they're desperate, they're afraid that they have lost somebody for good, and they have in human form. And so they come angry at the level of loss. There are people who have dealt with multiple traumas, and often their therapists send them to me saying, maybe this will shift you or whatever. So that's a very heavy, heavy, difficult situation because they don't leave happy. You know, you can leave at peace, but you tend not to leave a session happy when you have suffered serious, serious loss.
0: Yeah. It's more about soul searching and doing some more thinking. And
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: You're not necessarily providing anyone with a magic bullet, as they say, or a quick fix. You touched a little bit on this you talked about some of the things that you do, but have you found that the rest of your life has to be a certain way? It has to take shape in a certain way for you to be able to do what you do. We talked a little bit about health. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that needs to happen in order for you to fully express and fully be able to be who you are in your work?
1: I think I have to discipline myself to structure the number of clients I have in a day, because when I am working, I slip into timelessness. I also have to be strategic about who I do in my distant work. So dealing with Australia is always fun. I've had clients (laughs) in Australia for years and years and years. Have you ever been? No, no, I don't travel well.
0: (laughs) I don't travel well at all. Why is that? That's Um, a whole other conversation. Okay.
1: Oh, it's such an interesting conversation. Every hotel I go to, you know, Luminol, you know, Luminol is that spray that, that picks up on semen and blood and all of
0: those terrible things. Oh, you're saying you're just adverse to travel personally? Well, it's
1: not just that I'm adverse to travel, but I am the emotional Luminol in any hotel.
0: Oh, so, <laughs> oh, I see. So when you travel, there's an added layer, yes,
1: of... so everywhere I go,
0: so it's probably great for you when you do travel to return to the same yes places and the same things, yeah, maybe you're the person that asks for the same hotel room, exactly. It- Exactly. So we're talking about Australia. We're off topic. Yes. No,
1: no, that's great. But if I'm speaking with somebody on the phone in Australia or a zoom call or whatever, I think it's, it's a crazy time difference. So 8am in my world is 10pm there. So I'll hang up from a session and I'll want to go back to bed because I've, I've spent my time and energy in there psyche or in their energy in their world. Yeah. Yes. So I feel like it's bedtime at 9 a.m. I have to be very mindful about the energy I am exposed to and I have to pace myself accordingly.
0: And how you're planning your day and your schedule. It's planning a schedule next level, right? Yes. A lot of us are sort of like okay I'm going to start my day downtown, and then I'm going to make my way to midtown. And then by the end of the day, we'll finish my appointments on uptown. And then there's going to be this portion of my day for phone calls and my portion of my day for Zoom calls. But for you, it's times 10. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: And I tend not to work evenings because if I work evenings, I don't find I have enough time to ground myself after a session and I'll end up going to bed with somebody's
0: uncle. <laughs> somebody's <laughs> uncle. <laughs> We're going to talk about grounding yourself after right. a session very soon. First, can you get a little bit more specific? How do you manage all of the thoughts and feelings that surely flood your mind and body daily? Is there something that's happening and that you're doing during the course of a day?
1: I usually jot down lines, you know, My notes in my phone, I think I've got like 2,000 notes. I may or may not revisit them. Well, they belong in a book somehow. (laughs) That's a lovely idea. It it might be nonsensical, it will look a little crazy here and there. So I'd have to edit (laughs) some of it for sure. But that's helped a lot for me to jot down the flashes that I'm getting. And in all likelihood, I'll find a home for them.
0: Here's a question. How do you compartmentalize or separate your own thoughts and feelings from those of others?
1: It's kind of like recognizing a personality type. My thoughts are quirky observations, and
0: so they stand apart, I think, is what you're saying.
1: They do. My thoughts are my personality, the other energies, other people, other guides they just have a certain vibration to them, a certain knowledge base to them that I can't relate to. One of my clients is this incredible heart transplant surgeon. And when I sit in front of him, I understand the mechanics of a heart in such a neat way. And I feel this incredible passion for anything to do with that, that discipline. And then when he leaves, it's gone. So I find that while I'm in the space with a client or before, if one of their loved ones want to say something, I'll have this newfound knowledge, very temporary. I don't retain it, but I'll be able to talk about things that really don't make sense. I love speaking with actors for that reason, because there's the actor and then there's the role they're taking on. (laughs)
0: You're like, who's talking to me? Is it your current role that you're immersed in or is it you? Yeah. What are the practices and rituals that you have for both tuning into the work with a client and also moving on after a session?
1: Mm. Usually before a client, I need at least just 10 minutes of quiet where I, I just, I have this little practice where I close my eyes and I look for the still point. You know, when you close your eyes, there's always little um, visuals going on. Yeah. And then if you if you look, you can find a little stillness. And so I just close my eyes and I try to find the stillness there. And that seems to center me. Not for 10 minutes, That that takes 10 seconds to do. But generally speaking, before any session, my phone is off, I'm just trying to find stillness. And then after session, I think I just, when I can, when I'm allowed to, because we're still kind of post-pandemic, uh, if I'm in person with a, with a client, I'll hug them because it's not me hugging them. It's usually their loved ones hugging them.
0: Oh, that's so sweet.
1: And after they leave, I'll say a little a, a prayer for me. I often say I don't predict, but I do pray. And so whatever it is that came up in, in session that I think they may require more peace and clarity, I'll, I'll just send that wish with them. So it's a lot of love.
0: Typically, what is it that causes people to reach out to you for your services? What are people looking for? Originally, it was
1: just strictly mediumship. So loss, they wanted a connection with their loved one. And as I said earlier, more recently, people have lost a little bit of themselves.
0: Another great observation. Yeah. The difference between then and now.
1: There's a big distinction there. So remembering your own inner vocation and your own inner truth and reconnecting to that. And that's beautiful work.
0: Are there times when you feel you cannot take on a client or clients either because of what is happening for you or what is happening with them?
1: Yeah, rarely, but occasionally it happens.
0: Can you talk about what that would be? If
1: a person is coming for the wrong reason. What is
0: that? I'd love to know what that means, actually.
1: Years and years ago, I had one elderly lady, sweet woman. She came to me and her parents showed up and her adult children who had crossed over had shown up and, you know, she was quite elderly. I was like, I'm so sorry. I can't feel your, your husband for some reason. He's not coming forward. I I'm sure he's with you. And she said, Well, I'm not surprised he had a double life and he was a rotten so-and-so and and I just wanted to give him heck for the hell he put me through. So I I found that a a teachable moment for myself there, that if somebody is coming to the table with spite, anger, ego, it, it doesn't tend to work. You can be angry at your circumstances, but your emotions for the person you're connecting to must be loving.
0: Oh, that's another great quote. That's another, good one. <laughs> another good thing to remember.
1: Yeah. And forgiveness is kind of another element. I find when people are stuck in unforgiveness, often very justifiable.
0: I was actually having a conversation with a friend just probably yesterday who's going through something in her life. And we were discussing this notion of forgiveness. Mm. I would like to know what forgiveness means to you and to somebody like you. What does forgiveness mean?
1: Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is not saying I'm okay with what you've done. It's saying I am no longer defined by what you have done. And reconciliation is saying, come on over for dinner now. In my mind, there's, Conscious, active, I forgive you, verbal forgiveness. And then there's the more powerful forgiveness that happens when you, on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis, prove that you're a better person than the one who harmed you. So I look at people who were raised by abusive parents and I say to them, You have forgiven your parents by being better parents yourself, by choosing to learn by contrast instead of example. And so you don't have to say, I forgive you. Your life is a testament of forgiveness.
0: Through working with so many different people, vastly different people, what have you come to know about life's patterns? Oh,
1: that opinions are the worst things we can ever have an opinion is is this moment where we stop growing I think
0: that's going to be confusing to some people because we are taught to develop opinions to cultivate opinions to have opinions to bring the opinions at the table but what do you mean when you say that opinions are the problem I think
1: it's that until you've walked a mile in another person's shoes
0: so judgment we're talking about judgment
1: judgment more than opinions thank you judgment judgment and and here's the other thing yes certain things should be judged racism should be judged transphobia homophobia hatred in any form should be judged absolutely i'm not talking about those big issues but what i've observed is every time i have a judgment or in my case actually an opinion um uh, the universe has a way of showing me I know nothing, you know, that there's always another perspective to consider.
0: Here's another big question. Through working with so many different people, what have you come to know about people's desires?
1: Oh my gosh, all we want really is to be happy. But to be happy, not in a superficial way. You know, I think, we all need to be seen. We all need to be heard. Not, again, barring those terrible, terrible issues of racism and, and, and hatred. But in general, when we are suffering, it's usually because we haven't been supported. We haven't been seen. We haven't been heard.
0: You talked a little bit about the people who don't get what they should be getting out of a session with you. Who would you say are the people who do get the most out of your sessions? Are there any characteristics that you can point to?
1: Hmm. Open-mindedness. <laughs> people who are accountable, I find. People who are really accountable for their own emotions.
0: Who see themselves in the equation.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they are active in the making of their own surroundings and their own lives. Those are such incredible people to work with. I'm constantly inspired by those curious, open-hearted, open-minded, courageous people.
0: How would you like to see your work evolve?
1: Oh, my gosh. more love.
0: It's a big question, another big yeah, that's question a
1: big question. I'm really, really loving the I don't even know what to call it that, Feeling people's potential and putting words to it. I'm loving that. That's actually joyous work. But I also love the compassion work. I love giving people little gems of details and strange, strange, wonderful memories or stories from loved ones that have crossed over. It's all good. I I just want to continue doing it.
0: Biggest question. This is probably the biggest question. How would you like to see people? evolve. You know, what do you commonly hear in your sessions that you think that people as a whole can move away from?
1: I would love if people would start understanding that they don't need somebody like me to feel the peace and love that is constantly supporting them from the other side.
0: How do they do that? What's the first step in that? How do they do that is a big thing to tackle, but what would be the first step in that?
1: The first step is to not feel guilty if you have a good day when you're in a state of grief, because when we feel guilty about feeling good, when we are grieving a person, we lower our vibration. And often the reason we have a good day is because our loved one is trying to make us forget that they're dead. So forgetting a person is gone is not forgetting them. It's just forgetting the grief for a moment so that we can be well, because grief and loss physically hurts. It feels like a hangover. You know, we've all had that experience when we grieve a person It, we don't eat properly. We don't sleep properly. It, it, We carry it in our physicality. And so the first and most important thing is to come into a space of acceptance and mental health, ideally, <laughs> and then to embrace the idea of life to kind of come to a space of ease in the loss experience and from there we start sometimes we can actually feel them sometimes we just feel comfort sometimes we find dimes sometimes strange coincidences with birds lights flickering all sorts of phenomena can happen around us or we may just randomly think of them nonstop. And often when we're randomly thinking of a person we've lost nonstop, it's because they're standing right beside us. Also doing strange things without knowing why, like I think I sat in a strange little Italian restaurant before at one point waiting for you. And it was so atypical. And it was, it was a little bit of a, a shout out to somebody in that moment. So paying attention to the atypical moments is often their little ways of telling us that we're not alone and to take comfort from that.
0: We've had an intense two years and we can get into detail about why that is. It's been a real moment in time for everyone on the planet. What's inspiring you given all of that and where we are today? Without even thinking about it too much, what are you inspired by?
1: Reconnecting, a a deeper appreciation for what it is to be able to hold a friend's hand and to see a person. I love what technology has done, how it's made us more and more aware that we can connect virtually, and that's wonderful and lovely. But the idea of actually spending time with a person without distraction, just being in their company, I think all of us are more keenly aware of how blessed we are to be able to do that.
0: Very true. You and I often, over the course of years and knowing each other, have these conversations about the things that we love, the things that get us going, the things that we're obsessed with before we do that though, for the sake of this conversation and to understand your gift a little bit better, what are you picking up and how are you picking up anything else outside of this podcast conversation that we are having, or maybe you aren't, maybe, you know, what we just talked about is how you've been able to over the years be more present, I feel like I want to give people an understanding of as you and I are having this conversation. Is there anything else going on for you? Oh, wow. Well, it it may or may not apply to somebody on your staff or something, but
1: I feel like there's, it feels like there's a, this is so general and vague, but it feels like there's a very strong kind of paternal presence around somebody So I don't know if anybody's dealing with some dad issues or if they've lost a father or grandfather or something, but there's somebody near you that is being affected by, by that. I don't know if that makes sense. So it like, when you ask me to tap in, I'm getting something.
0: It's interesting to understand for the purpose of this conversation that we can be having this conversation right now. And, and this is also a part of our conversation.
1: Yeah. And the way I look at it is during our conversation I've tried to be very you know focused on you
0: and of course and our conversation. Right.
1: And then and then it's like oh and by the way what else is going on around? So it for me it would be very much the same as you saying now can you tell me how many books in your bookshelf are blue? <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I can do that. Let me just check. And oh, there's a stack behind you and a stack over there. So that's kind of how it works. It's where you put your focus and where you put your energy. But I'm getting, I'm getting, a, I am getting ai do not know, you'll have to ask whoever else is on the line. If
0: <laughs> Okay, we will do. Okay, Michelle, <laughs> here's the moment I've been waiting for. What's on wow. your six list of favorite things? What are the six things in your life that are happening right now or that you're incorporating into your life right now that you cannot get enough of?
1: My adult children and my dog. That's number one.
0: <laughs> so immediate family, let's call it.
1: Yeah, my immediate family. Yeah, and my dog. <laughs> Why is that? My keeps me honest. <laughs> Animals have a way of reading you, as do your immediate family, right? They don't care what you're doing or who you're speaking to. They just, they want you. So it, it keeps me very real. I'm obsessed with poetry. I always have been.
0: Who are you reading right now?
1: Constantly Leonard Cohen, I just keep going back to Leonard Cohen. He has a way with words. There's a simplicity and an honesty in that that I absolutely
0: adore. so there's that. Is there a particular Leonard Cohen that you are revisiting?
1: Not particularly. Uh, I prefer his poetry over his novels, but it it again, it's funny Leonard Cohen's poetry kind of pops into my mind and i'll I'll read it and it'll have something to do with what's going on with a client as well so I think I channel through Leonard Cohen which is strange but okay yeah so yeah number three my tune bed I'm obsessed with it I tune daily it is seriously a game changer I highly recommend number four and five are two separate Instagram accounts I follow so uh the first one is the new happy so it's this Really simple seeming graphic, but it has incredibly honest and profound philosophy behind it. And my understanding of the new happy is that it's dismantling the toxic positive that we see a
0: lot of. Cliff notes on the toxic positive, please.
1: The, the they're there, there, uh, this trouble is here to teach you something. Oh, right. Or came here to learn and yeah, no, no, ew. I don't, I don't prescribe to that at all. The new happy is really boots on the ground. We all suffer. Let's share it. You know, my dad used to say shared sorrow is sorrow halved and shared joy is joy doubled. And the new happy kind of embodies that, the idea that we are all together. Beautiful. Yeah, the other one is, Jillian Tarecki. She is this, do you know Jillian's
0: work? Yes.
1: Yes. She is incredible. Um, The wisdom that she drops is, is really quite inspiring. Regardless of what your relationship status is, she always throws gems around. It's incredible. And then I also am obsessed with podcasting. I'm late to the game in podcasting, but I have fallen in love with podcasts. I love your podcast. You are a natural. God bless you. Incredible.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I was, you know, surprise, surprise. I was an early adopter yeah. of podcasts uh, when you discover them and you incorporate them into your life in a way that makes sense for you. They're really, they're little gifts or little treasures, right? They're so incredible. What podcasts are you listening to? Podcasts in general,
1: but I do listen to Good Morning with Nikki Walton every morning. She does this really amazing five to 11 minute meditation. And she'll quote, you know, Paramahansa, Yogananda, Christ and Nicki Minaj. Like she's really- Again, very amazing. Michelle murphy <laughs> Right, all over the place, it's amazing. So I really enjoy her. Behind the Human is a really, really good podcast I've discovered as well. Mark Champagne, that's his real name, Champagne. Mark Champagne um, on mental fitness processes. So he interviews people who are mentally fit. And I really like that, the idea that it's something we have to work at. And then I've, you know, been obsessed over Story and Rain for a while. So this is genuine. The other thing I am constantly obsessed with is our friend Paige and
0: her jewelry. We love Paige. Oh. Is there something that you're wearing from Paige that we love?
1: I don't have it on right now, but I have her wavy ring. You know, her, uh, her
0: waves. Oh, no, just everything's great. Everything's always so,
1: great. Yeah. I have two of her rings and a few of her smaller pieces, but just her palm cuffs are amazing. She does really neat stuff. And she does really interesting, huge gemstones that she drills diamonds into. So she has like a black onyx with these diamonds drilled into them on really neat chains. So she does beautiful, beautiful work.
0: She does beautiful work. Well, this was such a treasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was. Thank you for being on the podcast. You are such a treasure. Sending you lots of love. I miss you. I miss you too. I hope I see you in person soon. It's been a while. God willing. Exactly. Thank you, Michelle Murphy. Thank you. Bye.